We turn our Bibles to James, James chapter 5, and we read from verse 7 to verse 12, and this afternoon we will send our thoughts up to verse 11, and then the Lord willing, next time we'll send, we'll send our thoughts on verse 12. James and chapter 5, I commence reading from verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also, be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we, considered, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and now you've seen the purpose of the Lord how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes <clears throat> and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. <coughs> Excuse me. This evening, as we continue to make our way through the series in this letter of James, we are slowly getting to the end of the letter. And as we are coming to the end of this letter, you notice that James begins to highlight the statements that he had made earlier on before in his books, and as he, rather in this letter, and as he begins to sort of bring the plan down, James' last statements to the scattered believers, and in many ways uh, to all of us today, he is wrapping up his message that he has been delivering through this letter. And as he winds his letter, James ends in, uh, not in the usual typical way of how uh, the first century uh, letters, general letters, whether Christians or not, used to write their letters. You'll see that in, in the Apostle Paul's letters where Having written uh, what he wanted to write, he ends with greetings or recommendation. But James ends in, in a different, different way, which was not common in the first century. But also note that as he wraps up this, his letter, or as he begins to wrap up his letter, he starts to merge some of the themes that he's been dealing with, some of the ideas and the, the principles 
that is stated throughout his letter. And as he does that, he is now bringing it into one unified exhortation to the people. And that one unified exhortation is the fact that as they live their Christian lives in practical, godly ways, their focus must be always on the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that as wherever they are, as, as they suffer injustice, as they, as, they, as they suffer trials and temptations, there is this promise, this fixed promise. And this promise is the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is this one cohesive exhortation that James brings uh, to his immediate audience and to, and to all of us. In other words, he is getting to the heart of the matter. That all these things, as you, you implement them, apply them, they must not move you away from this promise that God has given us that he will return again. And this is the message that James is highlighting. And therefore, he, he writes to show that even as you feel mistreated unjustly, God has given you a promise. And the fact that he's coming again to wrap up history. And therefore, you can patiently wait upon this God based on his promise. Now, we all have experienced hate, mistreatment, misunderstanding, and, and such hate come in a variety of packages or in a variety of ways. For some, it's painful working situations where you, you just have unbearable boss or fellow workers. Others, it could be domestic conflicts. Uh, maybe husband and wives or children growing up in a home where there's domestic conflicts. Relatives taking advantage of you or friends taking advantage of you or your neighbors causing hurt or entertaining untrue opinions about you. And so all these painful realities that we go through can cause us to natural as it were, want to respond or to react or to pay evil for evil. And oftentimes when we do that, when we want to take matters into our hands, it's because that this promise of God that is coming and will make all things straight is not uppermost in our hands. 
Or sometimes we think he's taking too long. And therefore, let me just deal with the matter. At least I'll have some peace or things will normalize. Now James is saying there is, there's an alternative, a better alternative. Wait patiently on the Lord, and as you do so, you must establish your hearts in this reality and remain steadfast in this reality, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, we can be patient in whatever situation we find ourselves in. And the first thing that James draws our attention to in this passage, the first thing is, is, is the call for patience. The call for patience, and we see that in verse 7 and part of verse 8, this call of patience. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. And James's concern is that there is need to be patient during suffering because of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, be patient during suffering because of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he says, brothers, be patient therefore, Again, James connects this passage to where he's coming from. And the immediate connection is that of chapter 5, verse 1 through to verse 6, which we dealt with, I think, two or so weeks ago, where he was talking about the rich. And the rich that he was talking about is the rich who are not believers and who are there for mistreating believers. And he addresses them. And as he addresses them, he now reverts to his original intention of writing an encouragement to the saints. And then he says, brothers, therefore, be, or be patient, therefore, he shows that this paragraph or this section exists in connection with what he has been addressing. And as he does so, he wants to know that while he was de there was this denunciation of the, the wicked rich who are oppressing the believers, believers themselves need to be patient if they suffer at the hands of such individuals. And the reason why they ought to be patient is because they are constantly looking to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the conclusion that James makes is that despite the mistreatment that you may go through, believers suffering all kinds of treatment or trials, they are still to be 
patient until the coming of the Lord. And as James is confirming that fact that they have been mistreated, yes, but he encourages them that regardless of their mistreatment, patience must be seen in the sense because of that promise. Now in the New Testament, there are three different words used in reference to the second coming of Christ or connecting to the second, or talking about the second coming, thank you, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The common one is the parousia or parousia. It's the parousia which appears in Matthew chapter 24. In Matthew chapter 24, just highlight these verses, we will not have time to go through all of them. In Matthew 24, you find that in verse 3, verse 27, Verse 37 and 39 in Matthew 24, the parousia, the, the Greek word that's a parousia, it's talking about the second coming of Christ. And then it also appears in first, or used in First Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 19. And then in chapter 3 of first Thessalonians, second Thessalonians, first Thessalonians, chapter 3, verse 13, and then chapter 4 and verse 15, and also in chapter 5 and verse 23, and then also in second Thessalonians, chapter 2 and verse 1, and then first Corinthians 15 and verse 23. Then in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 28 and then 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16 and then chapter 3 and verse 4 of 2 Peter. Now in each of those verses, this word, the, the parousia, is the word that is ordinarily used of someone's arrival or someone's presence. Now, in the first century world, when the Greek culture, this word was also used in reference to the invasion of a country. When another nation invaded a country, that was the word that was, there was this parousia, this coming of another army to invade. Or it was also used in reference to the visit of the king to part of a province in his kingdom or a community in his kingdom. And so the, the New Testament authors use that word when they talk about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then the other word 
uh, that is used for the coming of Christ is epiphenia, epiphenia, which again is not as common as the parousia. Epiphenia is used uh, in Titus chapter 2 and verse 13. 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 1. So Titus chapter 2 verse 13. Second Timothy chapter 4 verse 1 and then Second Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 9, Epiphania. Now, this word Epiphania was used in reference of the appearance of a God, eh? in a small g, a God to his worshippers. A deity appears to its worshippers. And then it was also used of the succession of an emperor when he takes uh, his place on the throne. So there was this. So the connection was, if you, if you read the ancient world, is that the, empire, the emperors, rather, the kings, were always deemed as uh, some, some god of some, some form. So whenever he would ascend on his throne... And everyone would bow to him. This was the word that was used in reference. He's on the throne. Or when he's on the throne, and now he's taking his, his, he's leaving the throne, or he's taking his steps out of his seat, and everyone comes down. So that coming down of the king, this was the word that would be, would be used, the epiphania. Then the third word is Apocalypsis. Apocalypsis. Obviously, you, you know apocalypse, apocalyptic literature, apocalyptic word comes from there. The apocalypsis is also is used only by Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7, and in verse 13 of 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7, and chapter 1, verse 13. Now that word apocalypsis was, was the word that was used of the unveiling or laying bare something or someone rather. And when they are about to install a king and it's done, and now finally there's this laying bare on the unveiling of who's going to be the king. So this was the term that was used of that process. And now when it is used, particularly apocalypsis, when it's used in reference to the Lord Jesus Christ, so in connection to the Lord Jesus Christ, it's basically saying his second coming is the laying bare of the power and the glory of God upon men. It's the laying bare of the power and the glory of God upon men. And so what the New Testament authors are doing to us as we read the New Testament is that they give us a series of pictures when they talk about the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when you get all the three words and put them together and think of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
This is what we get. The second coming of Jesus Christ is the arrival of the king. It is God appearing to his people and mounting his eternal throne. It is God directing on the world the full blaze of his heavenly glory. The second coming of Jesus Christ is the arrival of the king. It is God appearing to his people, mounting his eternal throne, and it is God directing on the world the full blaze of his heavenly glory. And this is the, 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 the picture that we get when we read the New Testament in reference to the coming of Christ, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the promise that James wants his audience and all of us to have in mind that when Christ comes, it will not just be an ordinary event. It will not just be like an event that you can miss and it's happening on another part of the world and on this other side of the world, you are busy with what you want to do. No. It will be the arrival of the king. God appearing to his people. God coming to mount his eternal throne. And then God blazing his glory upon the earth. As the hymn writer will say, and the skies will be filled with rapture. There'll be this glory that will sweep the earth and everyone will see. And the king is coming. He's coming to put an end to everything that is unjust, to everything that is sinful, to everything that is in opposition against him. But it's also, it's God coming to his people. And James is saying, this is what should be in your mind. This is the promise that God has given. So when he calls for patience, he's saying, have this in mind. That the king who's coming is God. And is a king who's just, who delights in justice, who delights in righteousness. And as you suffer, he knows what you are going through. And therefore, he calls you to be patient. As you keep an eye on his return. And in anchoring this call to patience or to being patient, he illustrates that call with the example of a farmer. He says, look at the farmer. The farmer does plant a seed and he works. The farmer does doesn't plant a seed today and expect that tomorrow there will be there will be there will be something. 
Farmer is not like the way young uh, children are. It reminded me of myself where you are given a school project to plant a seed and you put it today and a few minutes later you want to see whether it's germinated. You, it's not germinating, you're not satisfied, you pour in water, pour in water, and then you hear a teacher say, no, it needs, it needs sunlight, and then you take it, put it on the sun, and sit there hoping that within hours the seed will come out. But, but you know that's not how farming is. And James is saying, think of a farmer. The farmer doesn't plant a seed, and, and then an hour later expects that that seed will be fully grown, we will have fruit that he can benefit from no it takes time but the farmer is expectant to have fruit he knows that god in his world is put in the, the laws of physics the laws of gravity the laws of biology when the seed goes into the ground it must it must rot and then begin to germinate it must first die and so the farmer knows something of that. And as he puts his seed, he knows that I'm, this is what I'm expecting. This is the promise that God has put or engraved in his world. He's expectant. He waits. And as he waits, he's taking care of the plant or taking care of the seeds. He's weeding, he's watering, he's ensuring that his plant does not die. And James says, this ought to be true of us. We ought to be patient as we suffer until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't try and rush or push things or engineer things or manipulate things so that you are out of your trials. Patiently wait upon God. Call upon him. Cry out to him. Keep an eye on his coming. The second thing we see is the fact that we must establish our hearts. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 8b to verse 9. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the admonition that James gives. This is the encouragement that James gives. And the word translated established in, in the ESV is sometimes translated as strengthen. And the idea is that 
as we wait on the Lord's return, we are to strengthen our hearts. We are to strengthen our hearts, or to put it another way, we are to stand firm in our faith. We are to stand firm in our faith. Or to put it more literally, make firm your hearts. Make firm your hearts. And James urges believers to do so. He said, this is a decisive act. You must decide to strengthen your heart and make firm the inner life. And this, this verb, establish, conveys the thought of strengthening and supporting something so that it will stand firm and is immovable. It's strengthening and supporting your faith so that you stand firm and you are immovable. And saying instead of you feeling agitated, frustrated, or shaken by the experiences of your oppressors or the, of, or the experience that you are going through, this oppression that you are going through, you must develop the inner sense of stability in your faith. You must be iron or put iron as it were into your hearts. So there must be this inner strengthening of your faith while the outward li your life is being shaken. Is being oppressed. You are being pushed from all angles. James is saying, strengthen your inner self. As you strengthen your inner self, it will be able to stand the pressures from outside. And as you are strengthening your inner self, your focus is the coming of Christ. And James' point isn't, isn't how long you wait in your trials. It's not about how long you wait, but it's about how firm you remain. And if I use, again, the example of the farmer, the illustration, The farmer remains hopeful, expectant that there will be something at the end of the harvest. There may be a partial drought, or in our case, we are familiar with army worms. He's still hopeful. He's not saying, how long will this take? But he remains hopeful. There will be something at the end of the harvest. And when you look at this, you see that this is exactly what James said at the beginning. 
in chapter 1 when you would say, count it all joy when you face trials of all kinds. Why are you counting it all joy? Your inner self is strengthened. It's stable. And you are counting it all joy because you know that each passing day I'm drawing closer to the coming of the king. Or we are drawing closer to his coming. He will usher me out of this world. Or if he doesn't do that, he will come for me. And he says, count it all joy. And that's how you strengthen your inner self. Counting it all joy when you face trials of all kind. But also, you strengthen your inner self. As it tells us in chapter 1 of James. That's how you, you strengthen your inner self. Chapter 1 of James. Verse 1, chapter 1, verse 2 to 4. Count it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfected and complete, lacking in nothing. Verse 22. How do you strengthen your hearts? Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in, the, in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. Chapter 3, verse 13 through to verse 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly and spiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vow practice. But the wisdom from above, it's first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good, good fruits, impartial and sincere. And the harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And then chapter 4, verse 1, all the way to verse 12. We won't read that. But again, in chapter 4, you see James is warning about not being friends of the world. He begins by saying, where do these, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? And he said, is, this, is it not this that your passions are at war within you? And so James is saying, if you strengthen your inner self, your passions will not be at all within yourself. 
because you are daily putting to death your inner self, but also strengthening your inner self in light of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how you strengthen your inner self. And then in verse 9, he, he brings in a statement which at first glance, it, it, it appears as if it's out of place. When he says, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. But again, this is in connection to what he's been saying. If you are not patient, if your inner self is not strengthened, you easily begin to groan and this is not like you, your groanings are going before God, but you begin to grumble against those who seem to be enjoying their walk with the Lord. Those who seem as if they are not going through trials. And that's why James is saying, do not grumble against one another, brothers. So the, James is saying, instead of you praying for the well-being of your brothers, you somehow begin first to question God and begin to wonder why is it that my friends are not going through what I'm going through. And James is saying, don't do that. Don't grumble. Don't get so overwhelmed with your situation, your difficulties, the pressures of life, that you begin to react in a way that seems ungrateful for believers who are flourishing and are establishing their inner self. The term grumble is the same, is the exact word that is used in the Old Testament in reference to uh, the children of Israel, it's used in Exodus, when the children of Israel were being oppressed by the Egyptians. And they groaned in their slavery and, they, and their cry reached God. But now, when James is using it here, he's saying that spirit that was in the Israelites who cried to God in groans, should not be present among believers groaning to each other. Basically saying, instead of thanking God, you begin to wonder why this one seems to have everything in order and not me. And this groaning or grumbling is aimed at fellow brothers. That's why James is saying, do not grumble against one another, brothers. It's not that you're grumbling against the people of the world. James is saying, against your fellow brothers. And he said, don't do that. Why? So that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. James is saying, this same king who's coming, this same God who's coming, is also the judge. 
He sees all things, and he knows when you fail to rejoice with those who are rejoicing, or weep with those who are weeping. And the cure to this kind of spirit is establishing your hearts for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in the third place, we see this exhortation to remain steadfast until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see the exhortation to remain steadfast until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we see in the third place, the exhortation to remain steadfast until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 10 and 11. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And that's the exhortation that James gives to remain steadfast until the coming of the Lord. And this encouragement is saying, look at the examples of godly individuals who've experienced hardships and yet remained steadfast. So look at the examples. Draw encouragement and strength from them. He cites an example of the prophets who spoke the word of God. And he says, look at their life. Look at their pattern of life. Look at their out, outcome. These men or these servants of the Lord went through hardship for the sake of preaching the message of God, the message of salvation. And look at them, draw strength from them, and you see from their lives that God is compassionate and merciful and is reinforcing this point by pointing to examples that were real and known to these individuals. They must have known and heard of the, the prophets of God who served God uh, in, in the Old Testament and even perhaps some who were present in their midst and what they had gone through. Although it doesn't give examples of prophets or calling them out by name, he, give, he says they are a lot. A lot of examples. He says, look at their lives. Now, when you read, when you use Bible apps, you, you discover that uh, 
they'll tell you that the, the Bible has 133 named prophets. These are the ones that are actually named as prophets. Others uh, are not named, but there are a lot. But there are 133 named prophets. And the very first man who, who was called a prophet is Abraham. When you read Genesis chapter 20 and verse 7, in Genesis chapter 20, the case is that of uh, he goes into, into Abimelech's land and God speaks to Abimelech in a dream that return this man's wife. He is a prophet. And what has happened to you? He will pray for you and you will get well. But when you look at Abraham's life and what he went through, real challenges. But his eye was on the promise of God. We have the scripture, so it's easy for us to know what happened. But he was taking God a day at a time. He's told, leave your country, your tribesmen, your father's country, to a land that I will show you. And you could imagine his faith. He doesn't even question which. He doesn't even say, okay, send me a location or a GPS so that I know exactly where I'm going. At least I know what I need to carry. He's just told, leave, I'll tell you. And he goes. And when you read in Genesis what he went through, the battles he fought, and God was still telling him, I'll make you into a great nation. He took God a day at a time. His faith was anchored in the promise of God. And when you look at the end of his life, as James says, you can see the purpose of the Lord. He is compassionate and merciful. Then he cites the example of Job. Again, think about his life and what he went through. A man who receives news, bad news one after the other. Within a short space of time, all he had is gone. And yet the preamble in the book of Job, we are told, he was a man who shunned evil, who feared God, has to tell us that whatever you read about this man, don't forget this. And when you go through the book of Job, we don't even know why Job is suffering. The, the book doesn't tell us, but the book reveals a great God. It tells us about God than Job's suffering. And James is saying, these are the examples you must look at. Look at the outcome of their lives. 
They all show that God is compassionate and merciful. And this was God's purpose to reveal to all of us that who read these accounts that he's a merciful and a compassionate God. We also have our own examples, living and dead examples, of men and women that have remained steadfast, keeping an eye on the coming of God. When you read church history, even African church history, even some of those missionaries that brought the gospel, how they died from Marelia for the sake of bringing the gospel. When you read David Livingstone, for instance, and you see how he journeyed into the interiors of Africa, how on a number of times he put his life at risk from wild animals, mosquito bites, but even fights among the slave traders, but also putting his life to defend the Africans so that they are not taken as slaves. And now, when you read about his life and what he went through, you and I are the products of those labors. Today we can call upon the name of God. the labors of others. But also have Christians in our day to day, individuals we know, who've gone through trials, hardship, and they've remained steadfast. And James is saying, look at these examples. You'll see that God is merciful and compassionate and this is why we ought to not only read church history, but interact as God's people. We get to know one another. As we have fellowship, you begin to see that you are not the only one who's going through trials. Others have gone through, and they've emerged victorious, not because of their efforts. They develop the inner stability of their hearts, and they focused on God. They saved God. They did not withdraw from the service of God. They gave themselves to save this God, and they pushed and pushed and pushed, and they're still saving God today. Living examples of men and women who have remained steadfast as they look to the coming of Christ. I made reference this morning to the death of Martha. And those of us who are, who are close to Joseph can say he remained steadfast as he took care of the wife. Perhaps the rest of you, it was from a distance. But we knew 
what he went through. Remember yesterday, after Barry went MacArthur and our brother Christian Shimbi, Dr. Shimbi, were telling Joseph that, brother, to be honest with you, what we've gone through, we don't know how we would have responded. We are just being honest with you. But one thing we've learned, you remain steadfast, trusting the Lord, looking to God. Even when it came, the first time the news, the, they were told of what was happening to Martha, the, the, the cancer, and then they had to go to India for treatment. And our brother was very hopeful that the Lord would provide resources. It wasn't working. And he said, the Lord will provide, and he begins to, to make plans for, for, for traveling to, to, to India for medical treatment for the wives. On countless times, you saw him remain steadfast and be by the side of the wife. And it was always the jovial Joe, as we say, always smiling. And these are examples right in our midst whom the Lord has allowed to go through trials one after the other. And we can see that the Lord is merciful and compassionate. The problem that when you're going through trials and, and you lock yourself from the Lord's service and from the Lord's people, you begin to think that you're the only one who's going through trials. Or you begin to think that no one has ever gone through what you're going through. But when you interact with God's people, you begin to see that the Lord is merciful. He's compassionate. His, his wisdom is infinite. His plans are beyond human imagination. You can't fathom what he's doing behind the scenes. We can simply say with William Cooper, behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. So judge not the Lord with feeble sense. His purposes will ripen soon. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. And William Cooper, who wrote that hymn and, and some of the other hymns, battled with mental illness, depression. And some of those hymns were written when he was depressed. Writing about the glory the mercy and the compassion of God. And James is saying, 
We have a promise. He's coming again. He's coming soon. And therefore, we can be patient. And that patience is based on his promise. Not on any other promise. His promise. The king is coming again. And while we wait in expectation, we can remind ourselves that we are heirs of the Father, joint heirs with the Son. We are children of the kingdom. We are family. We are one. And we are longing for his coming. That's the promise. We are longing for his coming. Men and angels shout and sing. And when he comes, all dominion shall be given to the family of the king. While we long for his coming, we must establish our inner hearts, strengthen ourselves, and get to work and do that which he wants us to do. Amen.